HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. This week on Meat in 3, we're embracing the spooky spirit of Halloween, from zombies to witches. We're exploring the odd, the occult, and the taboo in the world of food. There are restaurants with no storefront, shrunken down into hundreds of square feet versus thousands of square feet. No servers, no hosts, nobody taking your order. The rats in the sewers are now smelling, all of a sudden, fresh food molecules. And those rats were like, holy cow, follow that scent. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
Okay. And um, I will be recording momentarily. And are you all set, Jess? Okay. Here we go. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are joined today by my favorite um, returning guest, Leah Douglas, who joins us once a month for the last six months to give us an update on her handy-dandy COVID map, uh, where she has been mapping the outbreak of uh, COVID-19 uh, in meat packers and food workers uh, across the country. If you're not familiar with Leah, let me just give you a quick update on who she is so that you can follow her yourselves on Twitter and on her Facebook, on her, um, excuse me, her website. Uh, she is a journalist who covers food and agriculture uh, from Washington, D.C. She focuses on corporate power, consolidation, regulation, big business, and political economy as they relate to food, to agriculture, labor, land, and the environment. So you can see why I like to have her on, people, right? Um, Leah was the 2020 recipient of the National Farmers Union Milt Hagel Award for Excellence in Agricultural Reporting, and she was a member of the 2019-2020 cohort of the New Economies Reporting Project Finance Solutions Fellowship. She is currently an associate editor and staff writer at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, also known as FERN, F-E-R-N. If you don't know FERN, you should. Um, and more importantly, you should subscribe because they are doing God's work in terms of uh, journalism um, around uh, all kinds of topics that relate to food and agriculture, as it says in their title. Anyway, Leah, tell us about the map and what the new data says, because you've just finished an update, right? Yes, yes. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. And I am updating the map. I update it every day. And uh, today's update, uh, you know, as you said, just for context for folks who aren't familiar with this project, this is a map mm -hmm. and data set that I've been maintaining for the past six months, looking at outbreaks of COVID-19 at uh, meatpacking plants, food processing facilities, and on farms and other production facilities. Uh, and so as of today, when we're taping October 26th, uh, there's been almost 72,000 COVID-19 cases among the workers in those facilities uh, that I've counted, and at least uh, 327 worker deaths uh, since that's since uh, about um, since March and April. And uh, there's also been, let's see, almost 1400, over 1400 at this point outbreaks um, that I've tracked to those three sectors. Um, so we've seen a pretty consistent rise in new cases in these facilities. Um, there continue to be some underlying data issues in terms of getting access to testing results from uh, both, you know, food companies and also public health departments, uh, making it sort of difficult to um, assess how how we're doing in terms of um, mm. keeping workers safe and and improving the conditions. But uh, there have been some interesting trends, which I know we'll talk a bit about. Absolutely. So your most recent article <clears throat> talks about a potential surge um, in new infections. That was in Fern on um, was that September twenty third? Is that right? No, excuse me, October twenty first. Yes. Yes, October 21st. So in that piece, which was uh, published in Fern, as I said, uh, your article talks about a potential surge in new infections in meatpacking plants. Why is that going to happen? Since um, really, even though numbers overall are drifting upward over the summer, I think we saw a little bit of a sense of a plateau there. Um, wh why do you think we're seeing a new surge or likely to see a new surge? Yes. So I was trying to understand, you know, the trends that we've seen in this data set over the past six months. And I've been getting a lot of questions about, we know that we're looking at, we're experiencing a third wave nationwide. We know that cases are 
um, rising extremely rapidly in many, most states at this point. Um, so how is that going to affect the food, the food sector and, and particularly the meatpacking and food plants where workers are working in very close quarters or we saw those massive outbreaks in the spring. So with right. this story, I tried to evaluate the data that we've had and that I've collected over the last six months to try to draw out some trends. And what I found was really the, the peak of new reported cases was in the spring and early summer when we saw um, the spread of the virus really um, unchecked in a lot of those facilities before there were any sort of precautions implemented in many workplaces. And we saw hundreds um, hundreds of workers getting sick in, in single outbreaks and thousands of new outbreaks across the country. So um, that was really the peak. And as you said, there was a little bit of a drop in new cases over the summer, um, which, you know, as I said, you know, there could be many factors contributing to that. You know, we saw um, a dip in new cases over the summer nationally, you know, so there's some correlation to yeah. the national trend. There's also, you know, the data reporting has been really poor from a lot of the sources where I'm getting this information. So, um, you know, I always have to factor that into, you know, it's hard to parse out whether those actually fewer cases um, occurring or if they're just not being mm -hmm. reported. Mm -hmm. um, but all that aside, I, I took that information to public mm -hmm. health experts and epidemiologists and and their assessment was, you know, it, it's it's they're very concerned about the potential for new infections and new outbreaks, um, in large part because we we don't really know how well the precautions that have been taken are working. And we do know that with the rise in, in the um, occurrence of cold and flu season, um, you know, there could be complications to testing protocols that um, are in place. You know, one one epidemiologist said, you know, testing is already very complicated um, in these workplaces, and there's actually disincentive in some cases for workers to be tested because uh, they may, you know, have to quarantine at home and lose work and lose pay. Um, and that, you know, may become even more complicated if, um, you know, a symptomatic, a person is symptomatic, but, you know, maybe a, a plant manager or that worker might say, oh, it's just the cold, you know, I have to come to work, so I'm not even going to get my COVID test. Um, so there's some concern that all these factors uh, may build on each other and, and we may see some new infections this fall and winter. Let's remind listeners that if I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Leah, but I believe that the CARES Act, which was the first relief act that they passed back in April, um, that, that uh, the money that was set aside to help out workers who needed to stay home and quarantine is now gone. Just as there is no more hero pay for coming into work, there's no more um, sick leave pay going to workers that do in fact, uh, come down with COVID or really any any disease. Isn't is that true, or am I making that up? Well, we've definitely seen you know some of the company policies, you know, particularly in the meatpacking sector. This has gotten a lot of attention, where there was the you know quote unquote hero pay or you know incentive pay for workers to yeah. um, to come into work, you know, to help workers make it through times where they had to you know quarantine at home. Um, that some of those procedures and policies are are being rolled back, um, and I, and that's one of the underlying issues that. Um, you know, that I always try to point to in my reporting is, you know, right. where there are some instances where actually companies took measures um, to protect workers or to release information that are now being uh, rolled back, especially as, um, you know, there's a, there's an appearance of fewer cases and um, attention, you know, is in some in, in some areas moving elsewhere. So, um, you know, it definitely is a, a concern in terms of how will those rolled back policies affect workers' ability to get tested and to stay home when they need to. Yeah, absolutely. And so, <clears throat> so as you said, some of the plants have instituted uh, testing policies uh, for their employees, although it's it's not clear 
um, how often or how regularly uh, that happens. Um, but what are some of the other measures that you're aware of that have been adopted to protect uh, employees? And have they, do you think those have had any success in dialing back the outbreak or are we just not seeing the reports of numbers that really would reflect whether or not they're successful? So there have been a number of measures that, you know, I've heard, you know, reports that at facilities that have been taken, um, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest, most visible changes is the prevalence of personal protective equipment, particularly of masks and face shields, um, which was a major concern at the beginning in the few, beginning few months of the pandemic when workers yeah. really had no access to that. Um, so, you know, some plants have implemented physical barriers between workers, uh, particularly the meatpacking industry has advertised their use of plexiglass. Barriers, which are meant to, you know, yeah, you know, protect workers from each other. Um, there's other measures like temperature checks when workers arrive at facilities, um, and hand sanitation stations. So, you know, a lot of those um, those measures have been implemented. I would say that I've heard mixed reviews of whether um, the, the current measures are sufficient. Uh, you know, I have heard from several unions and several public health experts that there has been a reduction in new cases. You know, we're definitely not seeing the scale of the spread of the virus at these facilities that we saw in the spring. At the same time, you know, there's also pretty universal, um, you know, criticisms with some of these measures. Uh, for instance, you know, I've heard several reports that workers in some plants are provided with one mask per day, uh, but in a meatpacking facility or really any facility, you know, that mask could be contaminated and get sweaty and so on, where it's really not useful anymore. And if workers need a second mask, they have to pay for it themselves. That's that's one um, you know, iteration of that policy that I've heard. Um, you know, when it comes to the plexiglass barriers, you know, the barriers themselves are not floor to ceiling. They're only a few feet. Um, they're only a barrier if you're standing right next to it. You know, they're, they're quite narrow. So, um, you know, definitely epidemiologists have called into question how effective that is when we know that COVID-19 is an airborne virus and, um, you know, a, a small barrier like that may not may not fully stop the spread of the virus. So it's, it's been mixed reviews, I would say. Um, so there's some success, but uh, really evaluating the success is difficult without the full data set. And we're going to be talking about that in a minute. But in the meantime, <clears throat> a lot of advocates have been saying that slowing down the line speed, and by that I mean the speed with which animals move through the production process, um, slowing that down would allow for more distance between the workers, which would offer them better protection. Because as you just pointed out, those little plexiglass barriers that they're making a lot of uh, public relations hay out of um, only go in between the workers. But as if you've ever visited a slaughter plant, you would know, uh, as I do, that um, in nine times out of 20, the table upon which the meat is moving is is double sided. In other words, you're not just looking out into a blank, you know, into an empty room. You are looking six feet across at somebody else who is able to breathe directly at you and you at them. So whether or not you have a shield in between the guy who's right next to you um, is is almost moot because you are blowing your air back and forth between the person across the table. I believe that is true. Um, so did you want to comment on that? And especially talk about the line speeds. I'm sorry, I got mixed up in my question, as always. But really, we're talking about the line speed here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and you're totally correct that, you know, the, the proximity of workers isn't just side to side. It's also across the line. And that's also, um, you know, there's a limit to how, you know, that's a quite narrow space as well. So it's absolutely a factor. Um, in terms of the line speed, you know, there hasn't been a policy or 
widespread industry approach to slow down uh, production lines to address this particular issue of how to spread workers out so they're less vulnerable to contracting COVID-19. Um, the industry has really insisted that um, the line speed is not a factor in terms of spreading COVID-19 and that there's no greater risk to a greater line speed um, associated with you know, worker injury or worker illness. And um, that's sort of the industry line. Uh, I would say that from advocates, uh, labor advocates and public health experts, I've heard that you know, distancing, physical distance is kind of the last big frontier that would really protect, go the next step to really keep workers better protected than the current measures. Um, which are a little bit of a, um, you know, there's a little bit of a surface level, you know, hand sanitation, et cetera. It's important, obviously. But as we all know, with COVID-19, the bottom line is keeping physical distance between ourselves and others. And so that's, that's was just been described to me as sort of the next big step that could be taken. And, and there hasn't been um, indication that I've seen um, that plants have systematically implemented that policy. It's possible that individual plants have, um, but there hasn't been any type mm-hmm. of industry-wide effort. I also noted, I think I think it was in your article, I noted that some of the plants have indeed increased their line speed in order to make up for shortfalls in production due to uh, so many workers being out of out of work or, or in quarantine. Um, is that accurate that they have actually speeded up in some cases looking for, you know, to. Yeah. Sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead. Uh, There definitely have been reports of increased line speeds. And uh, particularly, you know, we know at the beginning of the pandemic that uh, worker absence and illness was really affecting meatpacking plants' ability to keep up with their production levels. And there were some reports that at that time, you know, there was efforts to speed up the line to kind of keep pace with the production needs. Um, And there's been, you know, I did a story a a few weeks ago looking at um, a line speed waiver program that the USDA has that um, allows some plants to run their lines faster than the industry standard and that there had been some some waivers approved um, in, in April, you know, while the pandemic was already underway. Um, so there has been, you know, if there's been any industry movement, it's been towards an increased line speed um, or maintaining the status quo. Right, right. And of course, <clears throat> I want to remind people that increasing the line speed um, in pork and, pol- and poultry plants has been a long sought after goal of the North American Meat uh, Institute and all of the all of the uh, you know the pork producers council the chicken council and so on they all want to speed up the line speed they've been trying to do it i think almost for over 20 years if i'm not mistaken um, but i think you know i've been covering this you know it's called the hemp program of course i can't remember what that acronym stands for but h i m p um for listeners who are interested you can go back and listen to some of my earliest shows actually when i first started doing this um, i was talking about um, whether or not they were going to get away with implementing these faster line speeds uh, way back when with um, the Government Accountability Project uh, and uh, the Food Integrity Campaign, which is run by the inestimable Amanda Hitt, um, who's always been a great source of information about these inside uh, moves on the part of meatpacking. So um, with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Leah Douglas. We're going to talk more about an article she published just a few days ago, October 21st in Fern, um, about sort of the potential resurgence of COVID in the United States uh, food worker force. So please stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at Heritage Radio Network, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. 
We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal. Food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. This is, just in case uh, you forgot since the top of the show, (laughs) what you're listening to, (laughs) which is something, quite honestly, I could do, but I I imagine most people wouldn't. Uh, But this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. My guest today, Leah Douglas, uh, comes on every month to bring us up to date on this incredible project, which, by the way, um, Leah, I know we talked about this the last time, but you have gotten so much play out of this. I mean, like, even meat packers are using your numbers to make themselves look good. You know, I mean, it's really, it's, it's kind of ironic to me how successful uh, in many ways this project has been outside of what I suspect you anticipated it to be useful, you know, or the people who would be interested in it, right? Yes, absolutely. It's definitely been uh, pretty incredible to see, you know, it's, it's, the data has has been used, as you said, by the meat industry. Um, there was some mis misinterpretation of the data, and in, in their uh, in what the a surprise North, North American <laughs> Meat Institute's most recent <laughs> use of the data, which I clarified on Twitter for anyone interested. Uh, but right. it's it's been really gratifying to see the project get such a wide reach. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I, kudos to you, my dear. Now let's talk about North American Meat in, uh, Institute. A spokesman for NAMI, uh, who was quoted in your article. She claimed that the industry as a whole has spent upwards of $1 billion, that's B with a billion dollars, on protecting their workers. What exactly is she talking about, given that A, line speeds remain accelerated, B, plastic shields in between workers is not a universal fitting, and not everybody has adopted that, testing is not universal, so is she just talking about giving people masks? And you just said a minute ago that if they use more than one mask, they often have to make the second one out of their own pocket. So who, what is she saying here? What, what kind of, what, where, where is that figure coming from? You know, it's a great question. And, and the meat industry has, you know, uh, various meat companies have put forward different dollar amounts that they've spent um, in terms of navigating the pandemic. Some, you know, the coverage that I've seen in their, in their press releases and so on has indicated that there's a, basically everything from worker testing to PPE to uh, bonus pay, to paid time off, all those different benefits, short-term and long-term, that have been implemented um, are all going into those calculations. I actually saw uh, an article at one point that said, or I'm not sure if it was a, uh, it was an article saying that Smithfield has spent um, $500 million alone on, on COVID uh, precautions. So there's half the billion that she's referring to. Um, mm. So, you know, it, it's an interesting, um, it's, it's an interesting assessment uh, in terms of how that how that dollar figure is being calculated? I think it's it's relevant insofar as that money, uh, that figure is being put forward as um, a rallying cry for the industry to to enlist government aid and government support and um, you know financial aid in terms of navigating the pandemic and also um, enlisting uh, government interest in in meatpacking workers being 
first in line for a COVID vaccine uh, is another interesting issue that's emerging. So, um, nice. you know, I think everything is sort of being wrapped up into that, uh, that dollar figure. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm struggling with that. I really am. <clears throat> Especially given the fact that some of that money for say workers to be able to stay home and quarantine, for example, uh, some of that money came out of the CARES Act. So, and that's not happening anymore. A lot of those people aren't getting that bonus pay or that pay when they stay home uh, sick from work. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to dig in further with that. I wonder, did, did any of the union type folks that you speak with on a regular basis have any comment on that? Or was that just, she just came up with that and you kind of let it go? You know, I haven't asked specifically about that spending figure. That comment came in request to, uh, well, an interview request that was declined, but also more specific <laughs> questions about um, about protections uh, for workers and whether the industry is anticipating a fall and winter surge. Uh, and there was no comment on that. So that's where that quote came from. Very interesting. Yeah, really. I mean, I, I, it would be, I don't know how you could do that research. I don't know how you can get inside the the financials of these companies. I know they're very closely guarded. Um, but, uh, boy, that would be a fascinating, uh, run down a rabbit hole, wouldn't it? Um, so to go back to the testing for a second. So Tyson at the beginning of the pandemic, they said they were testing, uh, extensively and they have, I think something like 180 plants, um, working, functioning now in the United States. And, uh, and then it turned out when you investigated a bit further, in fact, they were only testing in something like 16 of the plants. And that went, you know, clarify this for me. Sure. So Tyson in the spring uh, had announced that they were they were taking on a company wide effort to test their workers for COVID-19. And it was a little bit unclear um, exactly what the scope of that testing program was. Their initial press releases said um, testing program was being rolled out at 40 facilities. Um, and I later did an analysis uh, that found that they had only released testing results from 18 facilities uh, oh. when all was said and done. And, and that effort lasted, it was between May and June, essentially. And right. uh, testing was done uh, between like one, two or three days at, at different plants around the country, different Tyson plants. And, you know, it was an interesting effort because it was, in, you know, there had been criticism of the companies for not uh, for not testing workers and not making that available. Um, in the wake of that effort, Tyson and a couple of other meat packers have um, have said that they are doing um, random COVID testing among their worker population to try to monitor for potential new outbreaks. Um, that information, you know, I presume needs to be reported to local public health authority because there is mandatory reporting in, in most cases for mm-hmm. new illness um, occurrences, but that information isn't being released anywhere publicly. Um, for assessment by the public or by public health experts. So uh, it's actually difficult to know exactly how extensive that testing is. All we have is is what the industry has said about it. Okay, I need to go back for a second to what you just said. So there is there is a mandate. In other words, they are legally obliged to release figures on their testing. Did I understand you correctly? But somehow uh, that's my, not happening? Well, just to clarify, so my understanding okay. is that Individual workplaces, when there have been instances of COVID-19, many states require reporting of those cases so that the state can keep track. And then the state makes a discretionary decision around whether that information is released to the public, um, which is, you know, something else that I've done a lot of reporting on is how many or actually how few states are taking that next step to then release that data to the public. So, um, So I'm just drawing the connecting the dots between 
you know, the, the companies are doing testing and, you know, we know that most states do require to, you know, that, that the public health authorities know where in the state there are COVID outbreaks. Uh, but that final step of alerting the public in most cases is not happening. Okay. So that's where we, we get to that. So the data from the testing gets to the state and then the state decides what it's going to do with it, whether it's going to sit on that information, uh, send it into, I don't know, the CDC uh, or, or, or alert their public health officials. Your article said that only four states are reporting their data on outbreaks to uh, public health agencies. Yes, how, did, to the, I don't, yeah. how is that happening? I don't understand. Sure. So that story, I, I essentially surveyed all 50 states to see what the public reporting um, and transparency looked like in terms of workplace outbreaks. Mm-hmm. So that what, what steps states are taking to tell the public, the general public, where there are workplace outbreaks specifically. And only right. four states that I found were either making that information regularly available or would tell me, you know, where there had been outbreaks just in, wow. in response to an email request. And there's a variety of, you know, um, there's many, there's maybe a dozen or 15 states that are doing um, partial reporting. So they'll either report an aggregate number of outbreaks at workplaces by sector. Maybe they'll report the number of workers in a sector who have gotten COVID, but not the specific workplaces or locations or companies. Um, some mm-hmm. states will report uh, just, uh, you know, how many deaths among workers. So it's really a patchwork uh, response. And it's worth noting that, you know, the top public health authorities and the country have recommended that, you know, there's daily or weekly public reporting of workplace outbreaks of COVID in order to alert the public as to how the virus is spreading in their community. So um, these policies, you know, do run in our intention with what uh, top public health officials are recommending. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, that's the next step that, you know, has been really a challenge in terms of tracking, you know, whether we're seeing new or sustained or decreasing cases in these sectors is that, without that final stage of public reporting, um, it's very difficult to know. And in my case, you know, I've, I've started to turn to public records requests and so on to try to get some of that underlying information. Um, but that can be quite difficult as it, it's a lengthy process. And um, definitely every state has has different uh, requirements and so on. Wow. I mean, I'm not to, not to ask you to give up your trade secrets, but how exactly do you approach uh, making that request? I mean, is it a, it's a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request? I mean, what you know, I don't understand why it's, I mean, I do understand why it's difficult to get it. Um, I guess my question really has to do with why are they not obliged to give it? Yes, that's a great question. And, you know, a great, great, you know, example or metaphor that I've been turning to around this question of, of states reporting is, you know, the CDC has done a couple of reports on the meat and poultry sector, and actually the whole also farm and, and food processing sectors. There was a report that came out this uh, last week that was updating their findings on how many workers have gotten sick. And in the CDC report, I think it was something like 33 states shared data. Um, and that's oh. based on a request. So, you know, even to the top federal authority, only 33 states are reporting, you know, their, their data on how many workers have have contracted the virus. And that does not include information about specific workplaces and, and specific companies. Um, so in right. terms of how this has played out at the state level, you know, there's been a lot of pressure from business interests not to release information about where there's specific, um, which specific companies have had outbreaks. Um, I, I, I believe the underlying concern being that it's bad PR, essentially. Um, but certainly, you know, uh, both, you know, the media and public interest 
advocates and also labor advocates have said that there's a major a major concern when we don't know uh, which workplaces have had outbreaks. And there's been many reports of even um, workers at a specific company, warehouse, et cetera, not knowing that there's a COVID-19 outbreak underway in their own workplace until it's reported in the media or until, um, you know, someone they, until know they get sick. sick. Oh, exactly. God. <laughs> That's unbelievable. So one of the other things I just want to drill down on a little bit with you is that you you pointed out um, in your last response or the one before that, that that a lot of plants are kind of rolling back those earlier transparency measures and how they reported the data. Um, I, I want to talk about that a little bit more. Like, I don't understand how they get away with that. How is that sure. legally possible? Sure. So I did a story that was looking at, um, you know, specifically states that, as you said, had had at one point and specifically over the summer introduced more rigorous transparency standards for how they were going to share information about workplace COVID-19 outbreaks. And this goes beyond just the um, agricultural sector, but just to the broader issue of workplace outbreak reporting. Sure. Um, and I look at Kansas and Arkansas as two examples of states that had begun to, uh, that, that made a specific decision to start announcing company names, specific locations of plants that were experiencing COVID-19 outbreaks. And in both cases, uh, within a week, that, that policy was rolled back. Um, in the case of Kansas, there um, new reporting system was was temporarily taken offline while there was an assessment of of how to re- reconfigure it. And then when it came back, um, they're only reporting cases. I believe the most recent version is they're only reporting new cases from the last 14 days. So they're not releasing aggregate information about how many people have have gotten sick at at a specific facility. Um, and in the case of Arkansas, they're releasing information about specific plants, but um, only the the plant is identified only by sector. So in the case of, um, for instance, a poultry plant, which has been um, has been really rampant COVID-19 outbreaks in the poultry industry in Arkansas, mm. um, it's just listed as manufacturing in their reports. Wow. Um, and then I have to request from the, from the state that they tell me which uh, plants those different lines are representing. Um, so, you know, this has been, there's been a lot of criticism um, by local and state, you know, media and, and transparency advocates who have really pushed for the states to do more reporting. Um, but as I said, you know, the other side is, is industry, whether it's the meat industry or just um, local chamber of commerce, business interests who are really pushing back on that style of transparency and reporting. Um, so it continues to be a major issue. There hasn't been significant headway in too many states on that. Wow. That, that's, that's truly chilling because I mean, I personally consider that immoral behavior. I mean, it should be illegal if it's not, I, I don't know why it isn't, but anyway, um, let's talk a little bit about the fact that, um, well, you, you mentioned that the CDC had not published any significant numbers, uh, that related to anything more recent than I think it was April or May or May or June in your article. But, um, but, but why, why is there no sort of federal coordinated response uh, in the sense, you know, with a group of people who are dedicated to aggregating and analyzing the data on these outbreaks in meat packing facilities, on farm, uh, on farm or, or in food processing. Um, whose job is that supposed to be? Isn't that supposed to be a CDC gig or, or, or did we, did Trump need to, uh, you know, implement some sort of czar of COVID uh, who would have been in charge of, of kind of tracking these outbreaks and, and bringing all of that information together so that public health officials could make a more educated uh, response to, um, you know, shutting the virus down. 
You know, it's a great question. And just to clarify around, you know, what's gone on with the CDC specifically, the CDC has has released um, essentially uh, three publications, one of which is updating the prior. So sort of two Mm -hmm. publications um, that are looking at that are reporting cases and outbreaks in in the sectors that I'm covering. Uh, But as you said, the data that they're aggregating only goes through May. So it's it's quite outdated at this point. and it's also a subset, as I said, of the 33 states that responded to the CDC's request for information about outbreaks. So again, you know, it's even further sub sub subset of the, wow. the true number of cases. Um, and there's no, you know, there is no public database or other information um, available from the CDC or other federal agencies that are tracking um, these cases. Uh, you know, it's 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 difficult to know exactly why that's happening. You know, it's interesting to look at the state level. Um, which is where I spend a lot of my time aggregating data, you right. know, there's a lot of discretion in terms of how the state public health authorities release information. You know, for instance, one of the big differences I look at is um, in rehab facilities and long-term care facilities, there's been far more specific um, outbreaks, um, excuse me, reporting of specific outbreaks in those types mm-hmm. of facilities. Um, so there's clearly a, a choice being made, you know, clearly there's, you know, the public health authority has the ability to report on outbreaks in those types of facilities, uh, but we have not seen the same in private businesses. And often the the reporting standards are different for, you know, a long-term care facility versus a private business. And again, you know, my understanding is that a lot of that has to do with how the business interests are weighing in on how the state should act. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the federal level, I haven't seen very much actually reporting on, on why and how there's no federal agency that is keeping track of this issue, um, but it definitely hamstrings um, those of us who are reporting on this. And of course, you know, uh, has precipitated and necessitated my database, uh, which has become sort of the stand-in for um, what really should be a federal effort that that could be much more comprehensive. Absolutely. And do you, uh, do it, with your ear to the ground as it is, do you hear any chatter about uh, the idea of establishing some sort of reporting mechanism that would aggregate uh, state, you know, data from all 50 states? Or is that just something that we can, you know, assume will happen either never, (laughs) if the Republicans remain in power, or potentially, possibly, if the Democrats assume power? Do you hear any interest? Like, what do the state officials say, for example? Do they, are they just like, well, you know, we're just flying blind. I mean, I, I can't imagine the impact this is having on managing the virus when it comes to uh, state government officials. I mean, it's, it's just so patently unfair and unnecessary, and it has so obviously contributed to the uh, prolongation of this disaster. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out why it's all being allowed to happen the way it's happening. Help me, well, Leah. <laughs> no problem. Well, in the answer to your question about whether I'm hearing any um, any news about potential measures that would be taken to track this more rigorously, no, unfortunately, is the answer. Um, okay. I, I have not heard any indication about that. You know, one helpful insight that I got from an epidemiologist a few months ago was um, she was uh, was speaking about how there's been a real uh, decline in the number of jobs at public of public health jobs in general. I think she said a yes. quarter million jobs have been lost in, in you know, maybe the last decade. Uh, and she, you know, really attributed the 
um, spotty and inconsistent nature of data reporting across the, uh, you know, across the board, not just in, in the agricultural sector, sure. um, to a real understaffing issue, chronic understaffing in the sector. So, you know, that isn't to make an excuse, that, you know, of any kind, but just to say that one piece of context is, you know, we've read a lot during the course of the pandemic that about how the public health sector is underfunded, has been chronically underfunded, and has really hamstrung our national response. And when you think about who at the federal level and the state level would be doing this type of tracking, um, would be doing, you know, the advocacy for testing and rolling that out, et cetera, you know, it would really be people within the Department of Health and, you know, public health roles. So that's that was one helpful piece of context I received um, yeah. about, you know, why this has been so inconsistent and, and gives another potential contributing factor beyond just the industry's pressure. Fascinating. Well, Lee, I guess we'll we'll leave it there uh, at at this <laughs> to be continued in a month. Um, thank you so much for everything that you're doing, um, folks. Once again, check out Leah's work. Um, she's at um, at Leah J Douglas, right? Is that your yes. Twitter handle? Yeah. Yeah. She's great Twitter feed, actually. I, everything I know, I learned from Leah's Twitter feed. Honest to God. <laughs> <laughs> I try um, to try to inform the people. <laughs> well, really, I mean, honestly, I hope you get a Pulitzer for this. I mean, truly, you deserve it. This is amazing, and everybody is glomming onto the work that you're doing. And uh, you know, you should be appropriately recompensed, uh, if not financially, then certainly reputationally. So, thank you so much for making me look good um, by coming on my show so regularly. <laughs> and we will we look forward to the next installment. Thank you so much, Leah. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Katie. You bet. And thanks to my sponsor and, of course, Jess, my engineer. Uh, and uh, see you next week, folks. To be continued, stay tuned. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.